If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You guys want to be in a documentary? Returning, returning guest, Daniel Gill, back in the house. Hi, Daniel. Hi, how's it going? Good. We actually, I've seen you more recently than I've seen Paco, actually, because we saw each other last night. Yeah, well, I didn't even, I didn't even think about the fact that you would probably be at the smell, but you were there. Dude, that was, were I was you? there two nights in a row. I was there. I thought maybe Friday possibly, too. where you weren't there three nights in a row? Well, <laughs> they were kind of, I was kind of getting guilted into going tonight to go see the Def Club uh, Black Dice guys. Show. Right. But um, yeah. right now I'm filming, I'm recording this. We'll see if I have any energy to do Three Nights at the Smell, which I don't think I've ever done in my life. Um, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. asking a lot. And speaking our, of like, <laughs> yeah, speaking of being old and going to rock shows. Yeah. Today, Dan, we are here to talk about, this is a film from 2022. It's, Meet Me in the Bathroom, directed by Will Loveless and Dylan Southern, who uh, I guess also made the LCD film, which I shut up and play the hits. Yeah. yeah. And it's based on the oral history of the early aughts, turn of the century New York uh, rock scene that was written by Lizzie Goodman, Goodman, which is Meet Me in the Bathroom. So I'm I have to admit, I did not read the book. Uh, Did you read the book? Okay. Yes. I think that's an important, I mean, the book is great. I'll just say that the book, uh, you should read the book. I mean, okay. it's basically like, uh, I think Lizzie uh, kind of modeled it after Please Kill Me mm-hmm. in that it is a completely um, uh, just quote-based oral history. She doesn't really have her own uh, opinion about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing of her, you know, it's basically just quotes, just interview quotes, the name of the person speaking and their quote, but in mm-hmm. a very methodical, chrono- not completely chronological, but mostly chronological way. I um, mean, it's very like bare bones, but it works really well. I read it in like an afternoon. It was such a fast read. That it's is a, a... like, it's a really long book. Mm-hmm. I mean, and considering. It... And you <laughs> I mean, were it's around, about... yeah, for some of yeah. it, right? So that makes I, you... I lived well. I lived in New York. Yeah, I lived in New York uh, from uh, the summer of 2002 till um, late 2004, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, the book kind of starts a little bit before that. Um, I mean, I was not in New York for 9 11. Basically, 9 11 happened, and I was living in Colorado, and my boss at the time was like, we should move to New York rent will be cheap oh god (laughs) um so um i i would say i i I, i'm happy to represent someone who didn't read the book and is coming to the film as a film right but at the same time i do have my own baggage with this scene or with this material like you know thinking about this entire music sub i don't this is like doesn't feel like a music subculture in a way i mean it's right, on from no, a subculture, but it became the mainstream culture, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to somebody else about it last night, and it's kind of like, 
well there were so many bands and actually so many kind of micro scenes happening in new york at the same time and a lot of those don't even get a mention it's really just i mean essentially this is the story of the most popular bands to come out of that time period in new york which is the strokes the IAS, lcd interpol a little bit of tv on the radio and the liars only because they were in the kind of same uh orbit as yeah because of dave siddick but um and the rapture and, and the rapture yeah. and but the, the rapture dfa all that stuff but um there was a lot of other things uh happening in new york i mean freak sure. folk was that freak folk was happening at mm -hmm. the same time um in new york um improv and, yeah, music like yeah electro like, clash electro i mean clash, hello yeah. <laughs> that was huge yeah. there could yeah. be a whole other i mean they could honestly do a whole other book and movie just about electro clash and it would probably be pretty interesting <laughs> i i am interested um, i'm interested in the way you can kind of slice and dice this sort of segment right like it's sort of like you, you could write a lot of these could be spun out into their own things or like made into like a uh you know a seven part series or something but yeah well this is i was like thinking about watching this i'm like is that a false premise well, like it's like is it kimya dawson saying we couldn't imagine there would be like or i don't know if it was kimya someone said it was hard to imagine like new york producing like vibrant rock bands again and like that doesn't right. that's never been my thought about that it might just be that other genres were dominating in the 90s mm -hmm. and coming up and like yes there was like i guess they kind of show like blink 182 and offspring and being like west coast sort of was like power pop uh punk pop and like new metal were like what was in the air at the time maybe there weren't and many and new metal bands i think i think that's the thing it's like most of yeah none of those bands were from new york um you can't really think of a famous grunge band from New York. Right. I'm trying to think in <laughs> late nineties, what there was like, okay, there was a lot of bands that were like, oh, this is also the period. Like if you think of the late nineties, right. We're thinking maybe like starting 95 post post Cobain stuff, maybe. Yeah. There, there was also this period where there's a purity about like, what is an indie label and what is a major label. And like, there were like these kind of hybrid things where it's like, it's an indie label, but it's, run through major distribution or like like vernon yard or something like that right they put out like mm -hmm. low records or just or like Z zero hour does that ring a bell like yes like labels that were like ostensibly indies but were clearly just kind of like a cut like a just a minor league farm team for majors so well i should point out that in the book lizzie starts by talking about um jonathan fire eater who were not even well they were kind of like a they were from Washington, D.C., but also had New York ties. Yeah. Uh, and they would play in New York a lot. Um, and they turned into the Walkman, basically. Right. Um, so, and the Walkman were definitely a New York band. But um, so she kind of starts the book by talking about how Jonathan Fire Eater was the band that kind of lit the fuse that, that sparked mm -hmm. the situation to arise for the Strokes and all these bands to exist. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a quote from julian in the book where he says i would just go see like the mooney suzuki play do you remember the mooney suzuki yes in fact that i i recently uh I've become acquaintances uh with one of the members of mooney suzuki who lives in la okay and first thing i saw last time i saw him first thing i was like did you did you see the movie just and he's like nah but we're quoted in the book like i'm quoted yeah. in the book yeah he, he is said. quoted he's quoted in the book and there's this great quote from julian where he said when I started the Strokes, I really just wanted to have a band that was as, as cool as the, the Mooney Suzuki, which yeah. I don't even really think like me, like I wasn't really living in, in New York at the time. The Mooney Suzuki was around playing a lot. I think mm -hmm. there was, they kind of were, I don't know. They would have been kind before. of like the band that opened for the makeup is like yes, what they would exactly. have been. Yeah. And like I kind really, of pop that style a little bit, like the, the they were doing scene. more of a straight up retro garage kind of mm -hmm. vibe. Yeah, and that's um, 
I hope we've not and lost so, everyone. If you're not down with these last few minutes of this podcast, it's going to be very deep references to a lot of 90s and 2000s music. So just, yeah, just be yeah, right. yeah. this is a bread and butter of what's up, Doc. <laughs> yeah. It's like guys in their 40s jabbing about the past. And this yeah, is so yeah. this should be something I love. I I have I feel conflicted about a few things about this film. Um I felt like the gratuitous like 9/11 footage. I don't know. Did it feel gratuitous to you? It felt gratuitous to me. It felt like okay. I mean, that's like, a fair point. I just yeah. felt like for me, I was watching it and I was like, "How did they even get this footage? Who was filming the Strokes walking around in the ashy aftermath oh, yeah. of nine? Oh yeah, like, like Paul, Paul from Interpol is like walking around in the dust, like picking up yeah. files and stuff. Yeah, right. Like this was a very weird thing to be like, we should film this. I don't know. Um, but that also goes back to the point of like. Uh, Okay, so two two points I wanted to make. First of all, I think when they um, initially were planning this this film, they were going to make it into a, a series. Okay, it wasn't originally going to be a, a just uh, you know standalone documentary. It was mm-hmm. going to be like a Hulu series or something. Um, then, second of all, they made a choice, a very clear choice, to only use archival footage. They didn't film anything new for the for the film. They just used archival footage that they were able to source from bands, managers, labels, fans, the internet, whatever. Um, So they put all that together. I mean, I think Vice themselves, who produced the movie, were um, filming a lot at the time. I remember Mm -hmm. seeing a Vice film crew kind of following around the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's backstage at a show that I was at. Or actually, yeah. it was at the the parking lot show that's that's in the film. Oh yeah, that show, right? That that, that was a legendary. That was a legendary moment. In that's two thousand two, and uh, the liars yeah. get short shrift in this film as well. I oh yeah, say. like they're pretty important in that in that scene. Yeah, I, mean, I love the, the quote. Li- yeah, go ahead. Oh, the quote from I think it's Brian Chase. He's like the big bands were Oneida, liars, sightings. I feel like there's one other one that's like like not really given a lot of attention in the doc, but like I'm like yeah, like I mean, in TV on the radio was like they were like probably the hardest working band of mm-hmm. this whole scene. Yeah. I remember just like I remember just like seeing them so much in the early uh, period of that band, and they were literally playing more than one show a day. Wow! <laughs> in New York, they were playing they were playing an afternoon show. And then like walking down the street and playing an evening show and maybe playing another set at like one in the morning at like lit or something like, yeah, I saw them play at a coffee shop. Okay. Like, like that's the kind of thing they were doing and they were already signed to touch and go at this point. (laughs) Like they were just, they were determined to like become, well, I think they were mainly trying to become a better live band, which they did Mm -hmm. pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw them go grow by leaps and bounds from the first time I saw them till, you know, the the actual major label album came out. It was like a different band. I always wanted to make music when you're the offspring of immigrants. And you say, I want to be an artist. You might as well say, thanks for all of this, but I'm going to put on a pair of clown shoes. (laughs) But I got to get whatever energy that's in me out. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. 
But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Given the constraints, I, I put myself in two shoes. It's like, I also like wouldn't want the job of putting all this together. And like, how do you how do you cram like seven bands stories together? And mm-hmm. um, the kind of chorus it of really, logic it, is Kimia Dawson. <laughs> it would have been probably, a, uh, a, I mean, I think they had enough material to work with to turn it into a seven part Hulu series, but uh, maybe the, uh, the execs at, uh, or whatever, whoever was behind funding this was kind of like, uh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I could see that. It's not, it's not that, it's not far enough away as like when they did like, um, you know, there there've been other like they did the Wu Tang thing. That was like, oh right, yeah, yeah, they did the Wu Tang kind of like drawn out bio series. There's so many characters in that as well. But um, yeah. I I I th- that's part of my thought about just the whole thing. It's like almost all these people are still actively doing music and like they kind of like, of course it's like, it's like we covered the ones that were biggest because they were the ones that people know. And then that isn't, it's a circular thing of like, therefore Mm -hmm. then they get the most, it's like when the, the when a rock doc is about how the rock doc, like the beginning of the rock doc is always, we were just a bunch of friends. We met in college. We met at a, at a coffee shop. And then by mm-hmm. the time they're like, then we were in England and like people were throwing panties at us. And like for the strokes, that just all happened in a year. <laughs> that was the thing that was yeah. insane about it. Or it just like, like in a couple months so or yeah. something. <laughs> yeah, bizarrely. Um, so I don't know. I guess that, I was saying to you, like my my frustration is like even just hearing like the Interpol being like, well, we were kind of living in the shadow of those guys. I'm like, well, you ended up being Interpol. It's fine for you. <laughs> like, I, I was comparing it to the the movie, uh, the doc comedian with Seinfeld, and how Orny yeah. Adams is like the guy who's like, like, ah, I'm struggling under being yeah. a new band, and um, you know. But I guess it's like, yeah, everyone has like their own kind of cross to bear, like the thing that they sort of are living under. Like Interpol seemed like they had a lot of darkness going on, actually. But I like the music from Interval. I think feel like that stuff hits, hit, holds up pretty well out of all these bands. Um, I'm not sure if they really got a chance to tell their their full story again. They were another uh, another band that kind of became like major. Uh, they were major players in that world, but they were kind of sidelined in the film a little bit. Um, they were like a foil. They're like the foil to be the like, foil to the Strokes or something. Right, yeah. but then the, in the but then they still end up being like fine in the end. Everyone got major label deals. Everyone made a lot of money. It's all fine. <laughs> There's well, no sob story, really. Was Moldy Peaches major label? I, I kind of wasn't super. Oh, aware. I feel like I, they blew counting, up. I'm not really. I'm not really counting. You're not them counting them. In, I'm, I'm counting the major. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, for the, the you know we have the Strokes, the AAS, Interpol, LCD, Rapture. All those bands got major label deals. Right, right, right. The, um, after I. Just the other day, I kind of came across Luke Jenner's Instagram. I was telling you about it. How? Oh, right. He this became like a life coach. Um, yeah. I just kind of also because like the Rapture started in San Francisco, and like my friend yeah. Brooks used to be in the band for a while. And I remember they moved to Seattle for a minute, and then I remember when they moved to New York, and that was probably like ninety eight, ninety nine that they moved to New York, and um, yeah, they used to just have be in this apartment in the Mission, um, but. I didn't really know them at the time. Uh, the, some stuff that Luke posted on the website for Meet Me in the Bathroom is talks about like um, his his mom's like mental health and like mm-hmm. she and suicide and like so he's 
been posting a lot about like a lot of personal growth stuff and like and now he's like, a life coach right yeah and like the stuff he's been posting about is like probably from like this angle of like partying a lot being you know super inebriated getting sober and then also like having your whole ego tied into this you know machine of like yeah you know other people validating you i did i guess i guess like uh one thing i'll, I'll point out is that, that the the dfa lcd section of the mm -hmm. film which has come sort of later in the film um is uh was one of the more interesting parts to me me too um and it also had things in there that were not in the book that i learned fresh from the film such as them kind of like when they started they decided well we're going to start a label we need to find a band to be on our <laughs> label that's not right. just our own stuff right like they had lcd was obviously going to be on the label from the get-go and they just kind of like stumbled across the rapture who had just moved to new york right mm -hmm. and uh and then they're like we can mold these guys you know like <laughs> um I can you can kind of like see that evil glare that evil glint in James Murphy's eye like I know what to do with this band. Yeah, I mean um, he's he's a fascinating character in the story. I feel like because like also like Julian's kind of interesting but he doesn't articulate very much like what mm -hmm. is going on with him. So there other people are like oh yeah, he felt conflicted. But like with James Murphy, he's so like verbose mm -hmm. and like also in my eyes are like relatable. Because yeah. he is a cynical guy who's just sort of like, I've been beating my head against this wall for for like thirty years, and like now I'm yeah. like, for, all these other people are getting this thing, and why why am I not getting it? And you know that kind. Of I thing. even remember at the time, you know, I was in my mid twenties, but like thinking like, oh, this guy is starting a new band, and he's like thirty seven. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, isn't that a little late or a little yeah. old to be like yeah. starting a brand new band and trying to like uh you know be part of the scene that's happening of all these twenty year olds? Right. Um so it, in a in a way it was like L C D was like uh going against all odds. They had yeah. the odds, you know, like the the odds were not really in their favor uh -huh. um to be a successful band. And even yeah. I love that scene where he plays uh, "Losing My Edge" for mm -hmm. for his partner. Yeah, and, and and he's like, "Don't release this. This is embarrassing. This oh is cringy." <laughs> like he's like, "This is like making me cringe." And James is like, "I am putting this out. I don't really care what you say. Like this is it. This is it for me. I'm ready to go. Like this is it's go time for me. Like now or never." So like, yeah. And then of course, that song is iconic now. Yeah, I mean, it is representing a truly cringy feeling but then like in other media that's become good right like that runs yeah. sometimes like mumblecore right it's like yeah. expose your vulnerability like you throw it all out there you know like you're the paul giamatti of post-punk or whatever you know? yeah. yeah um yeah no i totally. found that fascinating too uh i did a little research subsequently i knew there was some stuff going on in the business end of dfa and it seemed like they never had the business end super like buttoned down but like yeah him and tim mm -hmm. goldsworthy had a big falling out uh and yeah. i know this other label four four i believe is mm -hmm. the other guy that used to be involved in dfa so yeah yeah it, it just they were really he was really good at like having like kind of a manifesto and like a a thing to tie everything together in an aesthetic and and like good taste but it seems like yeah one of those things where you know then it just it doesn't necessarily all work out business-wise or like not everyone can stay get along and sustain that kind of thing when there's a clearly like this leader who's also an artist on the label I yeah it's a lot of it and then it also uh the whole thing with them doing their fake out breakup you know the the last show ever and in in kind of like tricking all their fans to flying to new york and coming to madison square garden for that show and then like yeah. Two years later, okay, we're back. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> I yeah, mean, it was like planned Jay -Z's out. Done that, right? <laughs> well, it was just. I think it was, it was planned out very methodically. Like we're gonna go away, announce that we're breaking up, and then just wait for that Coachella offer to go up to a million dollars or whatever. Like it, it for, was very Machiavellian. Yeah, he's yeah, it he, was very. 
Yeah, he's like, you think he has a long-term... It was a long-term plan. It was from the get-go. Mm. Like, he always intended to bring it back. He Because, right, like, that's not, like, the way he's portrayed in a lot of stuff. It's, it's like, a, not that calculating. It, like, is the brand. It's yeah. not to be that calculating and to be more... Oh, it had to be. Roughing. It had to be. Yeah. Um. So, I also... Nick Zinner was a guy who was just around new york like in yeah. like 99 2000 like i would like go anywhere in new york and just see nick zinner where it's like yes. it's a bar it's a restaurant it's a show he's djing me too he's bartending <laughs> he's just around i'm just like i, I remember saw just, yeah there you would be at a party and then just like him and connor oberst would like wander in together <laughs> and you'd be like these guys again <laughs> <laughs> but this no, is like I was thinking before before this band started, like I saw yeah. some other band he was in at like a Halloween party or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm having, I can't tell if this is a false memory that's planted in me because of this film or not, but I'm like, I do remember seeing the White Stripes at the Mercury Lounge. So yeah. I may have been at that first Yeah Yeah's show, but I yeah. cannot for the life of me remember ever seeing the Yeah Yeah's. Like maybe they were like, Maybe they played, maybe I caught like the last song or something. Or I remember hearing something about okay. them at the time. Yeah. I was in 2000. Yeah. Saw them a lot when I lived in New York. They would play a lot. They would just mm-hmm. play all the time. Um, and they kind of got to be the de facto opening band for anyone cool that was right. playing in New York. Like, I think there's a story of like they played. Either John Spencer saw them or they opened for John Spencer in New York and he fell in love with them and said, I want you to do my entire world tour with opening for me. Wow. That was their first tour, I believe, outside of New York. Um, And then they also, uh, I I think I saw them open for Sleater Kenny for sure at Irving Plaza. It was an amazing show. Um, And of course, how do you follow Karen? I don't know why they would want her to open for them. Because she blew them off the stage. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, I think they opened for the White Stripes again at a mm-hmm. bigger venue. I know they opened for them at the Mercury Lounge. And I think they opened for them many other times, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they would play a lot. I saw them many, many times. I saw, I remember just having this moment when I saw them play. the. There, there used to be a thing called the Siren Festival. Mm. That was a free outdoor festival at Coney Island that the Village Voice would curate. And yeah, 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 played that and Liars and a bunch of the other bands from the movie. I, I don't know why there isn't footage of that in the film because I, mm-hmm. I, I know people filmed it. But um, I remember standing way in the back of the of the uh you know field or whatever where the show was, and you could see Karen O's smile even when you were like a half a mile away from her. And I was like, this girl is going to be very famous. (laughs) Right. right. Like that was just like really early on, you know, like before Mm -hmm. the major label album before um, she was just like that magnetic on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she sort of represents, I think she's the main female, you know, representation in the film talks about yeah. like how the the sort of male gaze of the press and like people trying to like take photos up her skirt when she's performing and stuff like that and that's like sort of seems like she is like I felt very alone I didn't I even my bandmates weren't going through the same stuff I was going through and right I mean this very large persona being clearly a focal point of this band and being sort of fetishized um you know, so that that was like, I think, important to include, and I think it was really draining her, uh, you know, ability to keep going for a while. That's yeah, kind of the impression that I had. It seems like she's had to step it back, and then now they're back and fully doing stuff again. But like, yeah, your for your mental health, like that lifestyle of touring and having everything scrutinized and being in your face constantly has got to be draining. Yeah, for sure. And I that band like uh broke up and got back together, broke up and got back together about 30 times in that right. 
within the course of that those years and and i'm sure many other times later on Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um it was a very like volatile thing i was actually going back and reading some of their interviews prepping for this just to kind of like make sure i had the facts straight with them Mm -hmm. but like uh brian and karen went to oberlin together Mm -hmm. and didn't meet nick until they moved to new york yeah he went to i think he went to bard college um anyway so um but everyone in the film pretty much went to either an ivy league school or wesleyan or oberlin (laughs) oh yeah i think not i don't think luke or Vito did but i didn't one of the rapture guys i think might have been an oberlin guy or i remember this band that what maybe gabe was in or maddie was in called abcs they mm-hmm. were like a accordion saxophone drum trio it was like right. someone from rapture ended up being in that band um yeah th- that that's just kind of like a lot of people i met in new york around that time were people that had been to like yeah like wesleyan or something it's just like it's proximity and or bard or something like that or brown and like a lot of right. those people like just gravitated to new york so there's a lot of people like that were very highly educated in their early 20s that were like trying to create some kind of artistic impact i mean i'd say a parallel thing at the time that i was kind of more interested was like the providence scene which yeah. i kind of like really discovered around the year 2000 also like all like and that was all RISD kids yeah like the load record scene uh, airborne radar all that stuff yeah um I think like, yeah, class is an interesting element of this. It's like sort of like just it's a not really delved into. It's sort of like, you know, it's clearly like they oh, we moved to Brooklyn. Oh, it was cheap. And then right with there's only really out, you know, there's really only a, one minor moment in the film that kind of deals with that, which is the Nardwar scene. Yeah. Nardwar. Wow. Going hard. Which, um, yeah, he kind of like, you know, uh, asked the strokes about the swiss boarding school where they all met each other and they were kind of like oh we found out you know like well yeah narwar does his research (laughs) yeah he does he his research department is unmatched of course we all know this (laughs) but um but uh yeah so um I, i would say like that moment is thrown in there to be like we're acknowledging the class thing but mm-hmm. we're not going to spend too much time talking about it because it's not that interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, it's like anyone who's starting a band and also having to, to, you know, pay New York rent has to have funding coming from somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Like, what is thinking about the, can... <laughs> yeah. The practice spaces back then were like, you would, you would get like hourly practice spaces, right? Like that, like you had to be, really hooked up to have like a practice space where you kept all your if you stuff. were in manhattan if you were yeah, in, manhattan, in manhattan for sure yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah so the class thing is sort of like subtly in there but it's also like i think like it's like is this like sort of like the last dying breath of like when rock music was like like the, the like you know like rock is like sort of it's back rock is back in like the early 2000s and that's sort of like now it's just so many other genres exist to think about um, right. <laughs> that I think it's like, that's maybe the, the main thing. It's like, yeah, the sort of like model that was like an indie rock kind of model just became mainstream in this time period. And like, now it's like, I don't know that like, there was like, there's like underground rock, there is metal, there's punk, there's all this stuff. But like, I feel like in the mainstream, it's like, it's just like, Oh, the Foo Fighters or something. Like, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously there's more, popular current rock bands but it's just like it's just one option out of all the options that exist yeah I think that's yeah. the difference um there's also I, I would also mention that the book goes a little bit wider outside of new york there's like oh, a does. chapter called the rest of the rock revival bands that's like covers the killers and um right. even like kings of leon and the white stripes and uh bands like that um so it does kind of like acknowledge that this was like a thing that was happening beyond just new york um Mm -hmm. uh i didn't i don't you know i mean it is kind of odd that all this stuff happened around the same time period but i do think there was uh maybe just something in the air that was like uh we should cash in on this while this is happening well 
yeah i'm trying to remember back to that time like i think it was maybe the the interpol guy is saying like the magazines weren't covering this like the press wasn't covering this and like i feel like it, i i could I, I push back on that because it does feel like new york media cares about things happening in new york and like they just found something in their backyard they could just like you know i think they, they ran with it i think it i mean obviously it became that way maybe like at the yeah. very beginning sure yeah, like if you're playing brownies maybe you're not getting write-ups right but then the fact that they're oh, they were they were they were all getting uh very good press that was yeah. a total lie yeah yeah that was like that was like i'm like i think this is like not actually the case and especially being from other markets like if you're a market like san francisco like the, yeah there's like three places you get written about in san francisco so like it also helped York, there's so much more yeah it helped that um the stroke went over to the UK and timed it just right so that they would be like on the cover of the enemy right at the time that they were doing their first tour over there and of course that's partially rough trade yeah who you know signed them before anyone else signed them mm -hmm. and Jeff Travis being able to call in and to the enemy and say hey I have your new cover stars they're right here look at the look at the way these guys look you don't want to put them on the cover. <laughs> I would love to have seen more from Jeff Travis or anyone more from the management side or something, just to, because it's like they just like, like the strokes were like these man children that were like just doing drugs and running through the streets. I'm like, like, well, they're clearly people were making money off of them. And there's like more like of the business side of it happening. And they seemed kind of like oblivious or like frustrated by it. Um, I, I don't know. I think to me, that's interesting. That's why I find the GFA stuff interesting. It's like what that was the only label that was talked about. I mean, it's an artist mm -hmm. and a label, but yeah. like, yeah, with the strokes having management, I also, I, I'm, it's a lot to jump around because there's actually a lot going on in here. Um, the, so then there's sort of like the introduction of the film is multi peaches and they sort of touch on the anti-folk scene. Yeah, which is which is a whole thing that it goes back to the 80s, I think, in New York or even well, earlier than the 80s. The Sidewalk Cafe was like a very specific scene in New York that uh, spawned Moldy Peaches and Regina Spector and uh, Jeffrey Lewis and people like that. Mm -hmm. um, but and that was very specific, like only the people who hung out at this one bar at this one time period. And all kind of like, you know, had a very simple, like, I guess if you really want to talk about it, like they had a sensibility that was shared, but the sound, like Regina Spector doesn't sound anything like the Moldy Peaches. So it's not like they sounded alike. Yeah. They just had, they were just all friends and hung out of this one bar. So it was just a thing that came out of that one very specific moment. Yeah. Um, just like the, you know, Electro Clash was all centered around like this one bar Lux that was okay. in in Brooklyn. And I mean, it spread beyond that for sure, but that was like ground zero for it. Oh, I'm also like, would you say that should Todd P have been in this or is Todd P Todd, like too okay. like too underground by the time this is happening? Because like, I think of that time period, like mid 2000s New York, it's like Todd P is like, a thing that is like yeah important i i think okay so this brings up two important points again <laughs> first of all uh since you haven't read the book the book does a lot a uh, better job of of including the voices of people in the industry managers publicists label people mm, okay todd p himself i mm -hmm. believe is in it um and so that it kind of gets lost in the film Sure, There's sure. really only maybe like Ryan Gentles, uh, the manager of the Strokes, and maybe a couple other like uh, voices heard in the film that are not actually the musicians. Who mm -hmm. else? I I didn't rewatch it just like in the past week. So yeah, I think that's the only one that I remember. That's like someone who's or then I He's guess the only like one... DFA. Like I guess like the other right. you know DFA representing a label. That was about it. Yeah, that's about it. Um, but in the book. Uh, there was like a, a guy that I knew, Asif Ahmed, who managed most of the bands okay. other than the Strokes. Mm -hmm. um, he's in the book heavily. I would say he's kind of like sort of like the villain of the book in a way, or at least that's like. <laughs> is, is, is he set up that way? To he's be set like... up that way. 
the, the pure well, I mean, artist and then like besides, the one, yeah besides ryan adams ryan adams oh god awesome. yeah we we do need to talk about ryan <laughs> yeah yeah we have to talk about him at some point maybe let's wait a second let's finish this thought but um <laughs> i believe that there was something like where like that that parking lot show gets wrongly uh credited to todd p he he was not the organizer of that oh. show it was somebody else and i forget the name i'm, I'm not check. really going uh but fact check i'm not going off my notes i don't have right, any right, notes right. here i'm just going off my memory but um there was somebody else who actually put on that parking lot show mm. it was not todd p so um but it but basically right around that time after the parking lot show is really when Todd P kind of took over, uh, took the reins from whoever that was who actually did put on the parking lot show. Oh, okay. And was kind of like took over that world of doing all the DIY shows. Yeah. You know, weird, weird. Uh, he would like rent out the Polish national home or whatever, which eventually became Warsaw, the real venue. Um, or he would he would rent out random you know, like Elks Lodges or whatever. And yeah, Silent Barn, do, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah do that, stuff in, yeah. uh, in punk houses and things like that. Yeah. And I don't know that anyone. Yeah. There must have been people that kind of I think there's like a, a lot of like bands that are below the like there's like the band. There's like this era of like gang gang dance, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, except well, that was also kind of weird worlds. Yeah. I guess that's all loosely kind of electro clash, maybe. Well, no, I mean, I, I hate to say freak folk for uh, okay, gang 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 dance because Acceptor, they were never, maybe. yeah, acceptor definitely. I mean, animal collective to some degree, Devendra was around playing a lot of shows, mm -hmm. uh, but he was not really, I think he lived in New York for a minute, but he was mainly a Bay Area guy, yeah. Um, the weird, the weird folk stuff I felt like was a lot of like Massachusetts, Vermont kind of like sunburned and people like that yeah launch, and yeah. but then yeah what and then you also had the west coast contingent which is like joanna newsom and right. devendra we're we're, devendra, we're, I, we're starting new new documentary ideas by the way these are yes, all pitches yeah. for new documentary ideas someone do something about nevada city's uh long history of weirdos yeah so basically so far we have the uh the providence one the freak folk one <laughs> and the electro clash one they could all be documentaries yeah um i'm sort of thinking there was a few bands that were like also i remember seeing this band i mean like well like black dice i would see like every time they played in new york also in that time period because like every time you saw them it was going to be slightly different it was always it was, different there was always a sure. chunk and there was always like a little chunk of things happening around black dice well the first animal collective show i think was around was a black dice show um, they probably they probably opened for black dice yeah for the very first yeah 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 it was like an ab terror panda bear show mm -hmm. um but yeah, i saw like, them play uh like in somebody's living room black dice <laughs> no animal collective, oh, animal AB collective. Terror, an ab terror panda bear show yeah mm -hmm. yeah um and then like the record stores are not like you know like like there was like obviously the other music doc is a good compliment to this if you liked the other music doc you'll probably like stuff about this doc um yeah yeah i'm just thinking back like there is like okay i think there was a demarcation of like punk not really being part of this scene <laughs> or like some of these people came from punk but it's like it's not the same as the hardcore scene or the abc no Rear no. scene or anything like that that's i think no. where it became like where there's like if you were there was still a pretty active like punk scene that was like in new york punk scene that was happening and like this was like sort of a, a parallel thing that just like overshadowed all that stuff none it of that stuff would get it was out. totally separate yeah yeah it's not really the same thing at all yeah different venues different infrastructure but the other funny thing is i i don't really think like lcd and dfa were really that tied in with the rest of these bands i mean really they were all kind of on the off the, on their own little islands in a way but um mm -hmm. lcd really didn't have much to do with the rest of this they kind of get they came later for sure. just well, the timing was similar, but I mean, they LCD got a lot bigger later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, um, I mean, they were all kind of new uh, entities around the same time in New York. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I saw I think I saw one of the first proper LCD full band live shows was at Bowery Ballroom. Mm -hmm. There's a film. There's a show that's in the film that was uh, earlier than that. 
Mm. It was the very first show. Oh yeah, that was I. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that stuff. I I, yeah. I find him pretty compelling. He is as curmudgeonly as he is, maybe because he is curmudgeonly, and everyone else seems so kind of wide eyed, and he's just a sort of like stark, like like you know, like cynical kind of figure. Yeah, and he and he's, he's even not that cynical. Like he he's like he becomes like a believer kind of. He's like a a dance music believer. <laughs> he kind of has a, he has a conversion. He has the most kind of evolution of him, of himself, I think mm-hmm. in the film It's very clearly there was like this, but also they were very close to him because they made that other film with him. So like the filmmakers right. obviously have like a lot of insight into the James Murphy stuff. So like, yeah. I, I, f- I found that to be like, I found it more compelling, maybe identifiable or relatable in some ways more than like Karen O for me, you know? Um, yeah, I think, well, somebody else was also uh, pointing out to me that if you really watch this, uh, not really knowing that much about the bands, um, the yeah, yeah, yeah has actually come across as being the most likable group of people. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just, they seem quiet and like nice, you know? <laughs> yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, well, but, yeah. Um, I, I, I just, I mean, uh, Brian Chase was, uh, very nice guy to talk to around that time period and very approachable and friendly and just he was also yeah. playing in all these other bands the he's second. like a free jazz guy right yeah he's and like, he's a, yeah. an excellent jazz drummer and was i i think he's still putting out um jazz records uh mm-hmm. that he plays drums on or his own solo stuff um anyway so i mean i do think that as musicians they're really good they're very talented and mm-hmm. uh I, I think a lot of people just really were rooting for them to make it <laughs> for. Yeah. Yes. You know, and a lot of, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're like one of the bands that you're kind of like, um, you know, I want to see this, these, these three become the biggest band in the world. Mm-hmm. It, um, for a, a movie called meet me in the bathroom, which sort of has a lot of connotations. I think there's like not much drug talk till kind of near the end. And this is where maybe we can talk about Ryan Adams. Yeah. Sure. So the um the part in the, the the part in the book lines up pretty well with the 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 way they talk about it in the movie, although I don't remember uh the line where it was like you're not part of our scene anymore. <laughs> I think mm. they uh basically the 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 breakdown is that uh Julian finds out that uh Ryan had supplied Albert with heroin or got him hooked on heroin or blames him for being hooked on heroin. And then they decide to have a confrontation with Ryan Adams in a bar. Like pretty much the whole band shows up and tells them like, like we're stay away from our friend. Like stay away from our friend. We're cutting you off. Like that's it. We're done with you. Um, which maybe is like a, also like, oh, these guys knew that he was bad news way before the rest of the world found out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I was gonna say, like I've right. I've heard some some second hands, but like pretty gnarly Brian M stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't know he was a heroin guy though, and I didn't know that about Albert Hammond either. Um so like yeah, it's it's sort of like only that's the only kind of like druggy kind of references, I think, that are I guess Julian I assume it's like he's doing Coke or something. That's right. the stuff that's referenced earlier. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that that would be more part of the story. Is it more part of the book, like debauchery? I think, yeah, it, not, not, not too much more. I mean, there's not a little bit more of talking about like the after party scene that Interpol was kind of like the ringleaders of. I mean, oh, really? I, oh, it sounds like Carlos. Yeah. Carlos was the party animal of Interpol. He was definitely, um, yeah, or the man about town. It, it like we were talking about earlier. Like you would just see him everywhere you went. Mm-hmm. If you were hanging out in the Lower East Side, especially, which is where I lived, mm-hmm. I would see him all the time. Um, this holster, <laughs> the holster, yeah. Um, and then and then he left the band, like, and then everyone was kind of like, yeah, and then everyone was kind of like, what happened to him? Mm-hmm um his bass playing is very good on uh, when they show him just playing I'm like this is like duran duran or something he's like a sick <laughs> bass player yeah um 
but yeah, there's a little bit more uh, in the book about the the after hours uh, scene that all these people were, you know, part mm -hmm. of. And uh, but it doesn't really. I mean, I guess if you don't really have somebody ODing or <laughs> getting busted for dealing, it, it's it becomes a little less interesting. Like, yeah, everyone was doing drugs, so yeah. So this what? is where I find like the film as a as a story it's like, it's like a bunch of people being successful getting successful um and the conflict the and like the conflicts are sometimes like there's less internal conflict and just like it's sort of like the part of every rock biopic is like it's like rock stardom starts to feel boring kind of thing is what happens mm -hmm. a lot of the time i mean although so they don't I, really get to that part of the story you know i mean yeah. um this is such a document of youth. And there's somebody, uh, one of the reviews, uh, it might have been Pitchfork actually, uh, talked about how, um, you know, you see only archival footage of all these people in their early 20s mostly, other mm -hmm. than James Murphy. Um, but you're seeing everybody in like this eternal youthful glow. Yeah. No one ages in the film. You don't see anyone, like, because you, in a lot of rock docs, you'll see that archival footage yeah. juxtaposed with how they look now. Yeah, right. But Good point. they uh, took that element out completely by not filming anything new. Oh, that's so. I, they, so yeah. So you've got everybody uh, encased in amber, as it were. You know, you've got they're all yeah still twenty four in yeah. their prime, the best looking uh, state of their life or whatever. So <laughs> exactly. Um. I, I was thinking that maybe I didn't dig in to find the answer to this. I'm wondering if some of the interviews, like some of the interviews are on phone. I wonder if those are like Lizzie Goodman's own. Oh, they are. Yeah. Oh, so that's that all that audio is from that. Cause that's just getting me thinking too. Like that was the other reason why they wouldn't have talking heads. Cause like, this was a book project. This wasn't fully like thought through to be like, like let's also make a, uh, let's also capture this on video when they were doing the interviews. Yeah. So that, that's another aspect of it. like the voices are current ish but like all the footage ish. yeah like just yeah. like archival footage but then like yeah the, the interviews that are from the book directly that makes sense yeah yeah mm -hmm. would you say so you, hear, so you hear the disembodied voice of yeah julian on tape talking right. about things but you don't actually see him now saying these things right and it gives you that kind of like yeah that that's you're right. Everyone still looks good. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, they, you don't, no one is given the chance to age or get bored or uh, or talk about how, you know, uh, what it's like to be a band 20 years in. Right, right. Because that's not what this is about. But then also it does like feel like the end feels abrupt because then you just get like the end is just, oh, let's just play that loop of the poem from the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. It's like, they how do you get it. out of this? Because like, it's like, yeah, then everyone was pretty successful. I think Kimia Dawson's like life seems very dramatic. Uh, and following her on social media, it seems like there's a lot going on with her. But she seems very uh happy to be kind of back in the conversation. And like, Moldy Peaches is gonna play shows again, I guess, because partly because of this film coming out. Mm -hmm. That was the impression right. I was getting. Um, Dan, would you say for someone who's not inherently like of the era where these bands were like, you know, new to them and like they don't have like a context of being around New York, is it, would you recommend it to like, I don't know, someone who's like 22 or to someone who's like, I don't know, 60? I, I, yeah, I thought about what I was going to say for this. So, I think what I have to say is read the book. <laughs> the book's better than the film. That's kind of the, the vibe book. I'm getting from a lot of whatever. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you happen to have Showtime, it's worth a watch. Uh, yeah. I didn't have Showtime, so I got a yeah, screener. A screener. Yeah, it's on Showtime <laughs> um, now. But it's on Showtime now. And I eventually, maybe it'll end up, if, it, if you have a way to watch it on, uh, you know, some streaming platform where you don't have to pay, uh, it's probably worth a, it's worth the hour and a half. So I guess uh, if you like reliving the glory days of uh, pre, oh, you know what? Another important thing I was talking to somebody about. How did this happen uh, in New York at this time period? Mm -hmm. It was pre, it was pre iPhone. 
Right. Okay, so like the iPhone came out in 2006. Yeah. I believe. It was the mm-hmm. same year I started my company. Six, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. six, I think. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, at the time uh, that this was all happening, people only really had the ability to like maybe take photos on their phone or text, and that's it. Mm. You weren't looking at your phone all the goddamn time. <laughs> right, right. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, Fr- uh, Friendster that, era rock. <laughs> it was uh, MySpace and Friendster, Friendster were the yeah. only social media. And then I guess like the dating sites had started to pop up. But um, but other than that, I mean, you know, Life it was journal, still a very, yeah. it was still a very like, the internet was not your whole life. So right. um, you had to, you know, and also like the regionalism was maybe more important then. Right. Like I think now yeah. like we think like mm-hmm. I can hear about a band, some weird band from Florida and band camp, or you can find about some weird band from Scandinavia, but it was like, I did feel like people like in New York had a leg up because there was more media there and there was more mm-hmm. way to disseminate things. But if you were in like, you know, Idaho, like good luck getting discovered by anyone in the music industry, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, no, there were bands moving to New York uh, rapidly around that time period. Cause I mean, especially uh, like 2004 to nine, I think like there was like, okay, if you want to be in the center of the world, you have to go to New yeah. York. Um, yeah. And then there's like a lot of, I guess my sort of like my world of like knowing about this stuff, like the the sort of Todd P level bands where it's like, like Japanther is like the strokes of a bike punks or something, you know, like that's like <laughs> right. a sub sub level or like Dan Deacon maybe is like another person who like kind of came out of that Todd P world. But yeah, I mean, well, that, I, that's that's Baltimore. So that's a whole that's other docu- I, documentary. Yes, <laughs> he, definitely. There is a definitely a documentary made about Baltimore. But like, yeah, I yeah. feel like there was also like a continuum of like Philly, Baltimore, Providence bands all kind of coming through because it's a lot closer to do that on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. So, I mean, I think um, we're talking about New York being like the center of everything. I think that was kind of like what they were trying to hint at by having that intro be the yeah. intro and the outro it was like yeah we uh we were inspired by the you know the classic beats. new york <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. The, the the you know the classic new york bands uh the late 70s early 80s and then yeah now because of these bands right. you know new york lives on as being like yeah music music central or whatever yeah. i don't know <laughs> that's the, what rap, the rapture is television the strokes are the ramones i don't know like the the yeah are blondie i don't know just like there's like yeah. parallels you can make who is talking heads though i don't know um yeah i guess vampire weekend is talking heads that comes later um, dirty projectors dirty projectors <laughs> yeah there's, I mean, this is like it's kind of fun to think about this time period, and for I think for you and me. Oh, I guess maybe the, maybe liars, liars or Dude. dirty projectors. Liar. I feel like the one time I've seen liars, which was like a little bit, is definitely past this period. I'm like, oh, this band is like good and interesting and trying new things all the time, and I I like that about about the liars. You know, I feel like they always are kind of like evolving a little bit. Yeah, so. every record is different. Um they would kind of reinvent themselves every record kind of you know um i i i really liked uh the first three records were all uh i saw them live on each of those tours it was Mm -hmm. very different each time i I liked all of them yeah um and a lot of people probably like kind of fell off the bandwagon after they stopped being dance punk (laughs) yeah they got pretty weird out there yeah um also, I guess like someone at Showtime, do you want to do a seven-part docu series about sightings? I would watch that. <laughs> me, me, and me, and that's for me and Chris Weingarten. That's basically the two people that will watch yeah. that. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, yeah, it's fun to talk about this period of time and music, and like it, it. I do have nostalgia about that era, but like you know, like to me, these bands were like already like such givens and like i don't even think i don't even think about them they're like like oxygen 
you know, at the, and like, so it's, it's interesting to like go back and like kind of get their insights into things. I do think like, yeah, like I, the, the uh, James Murphy stuff is the stuff that kind of is most relatable to me. I should watch that uh, other film they made. The, you didn't the, ever watch the, the LCD film? I never watched it, so I should watch Okay, that. so that's basically just a concert film. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very well done. Mm-hmm. I, I I liked it a lot. Um, I believe Arcade Fire opened the show. Mm. And so they're kind of in it as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, the footage is great. It's very well produced uh, as a standalone document of that time period it's really good um and i think that is available on netflix if anyone wants to watch that so i mean going back to do we recommend the film did you what is your take did you say (laughs) i think if you're like in your 40s or 30s maybe it's got a more like you'll you'll have you'll remember this time before the iphone a little bit better and it might be Mm -hmm. like feel like just like i i don't know i was talking to a lot of people about this when i first saw it because i didn't know how i felt about it i just watched it again and i'm like i have criticisms but i do feel like it's like an entertaining entryway into this world so uh, yeah like i you're making me want to read the book i think like the stuff i'm more interested in is probably gonna be in the book i think this is a good kind of survey but like I was talking to Paco about this and he's like, I don't know these bands. I'm like, yeah, you probably are not going to like this. If you don't like these bands at all, or you don't know these bands at all. I don't think it's going to be. Yeah. I, I mean, like, not, yeah. If you're not at least a fan of one of these bands, then you are not going to care. I think if you, I mean, like, look, like maps is a very good song and there's like a cool scene from maps, but then like, I, th- I think it's like, you have to like at least one of these bands. And even like, I don't, I didn't think of myself as a Strokes fan, but I'm like, yeah, like they have a formula, but it works. Like mm-hmm. everything is like formulaic that they do, but it, they do it very well. And and I yeah. appreciate that about them. Yeah. I also learned one thing uh, from this film that I did not really know. Yeah, And having been a, a pretty like big Strokes fan, I saw the Strokes on the day that is this it came out in america oh wow. but they were playing in boulder colorado oh right that's where the show is it was it was strokes and moldy peaches but it was the same day their album came out it was that day Mm -hmm. um so you know things were already happening i mean they were they were already at the stage where they were selling out a show in boulder colorado so like Mm -hmm. they it was already the hype was already there um but as a Strokes fan, I did not realize that they kind of talk in the film about how uh, Julian was the Strokes. Like it was purely his vision, mm-hmm. even though the other guys are kind of, you know, uh, in the press or or whatever, like or in the imagery of the Strokes, kind of given equal footing mm-hmm. um, as being important parts of the band. Like he uh, kind of ruled over that band with an iron fist even like so they talk about you know the scene where albert uh, says i had a song that i thought might work yeah. as a stroke song i tried yeah. to take it to julian he says nope no way like <laughs> oh. i showed it to ryan adams <laughs> yeah um so i think i learned that about the strokes i didn't really and then i kind of didn't really make sense why he has his solo project and the voids because if strokes is already basically just him why does he have you know, another oh, band. Julian has another band. Yeah, he has oh. a solo record, and then he had after that it was called Julian Casablancas and the Voids. Um, Probably contractual have, stuff or something. <laughs> I think he just constantly writing and constant just has too many songs, or wanted to do stuff that wasn't quite poppy enough to be considered, you know, right for the Strokes, and wanted to do, have a, another lane for that. But the first Julian solo record is essentially a you know, just a little bit more synth-driven Strokes record. Oh, cool. It's very good. I'll check it out. Yeah, it's good. It's check very out these good. bands. Great... Check out check out Interpol. <laughs> Interpol wrote some. Interpol wrote some good uh, British songs by an American band. <laughs> um, they were a great Joy Division tribute band. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, like like definitely. 
Um, but yeah, Dan, thanks for talking to us about meet me in the bathroom. I think we both like would like quali quali it's a qualified recommendation. It's like, yes, it, only you have to like this or be interested in it if you if you're totally not down if you don't if you hate maps you won't like this documentary <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah but um but yeah the book has a lot of juicy stuff in it and it's very uh, uh well uh well put together and it, it is a very quick read at least if you're like me i i tore through the book um and dan so i don't I tear would, through I, I don't tear through any books like i have like <laughs> i have wasu's book and i'm like i've read 50 pages of it. I'm like, wait, I'm just going to email this guy. I'm like, we have too many weird life similarities. Uh, right. But um, yeah, thanks for coming on Subdoc again, Dan. You're like, uh, you're my new Paco. <laughs> no, don't say no, that. No, no, I, don't no, want, no. I, don't want, I don't want Paco mad at me. No, no Paco, no, 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 no. I'm not no. trying to. You're my, indie, you're, my in, you're my indie rock Paco. Okay. Yeah, I'll take we'll, that. We'll, we'll take that. Okay, cool. Um, talk to you soon. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Yep, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Subdoc at subdocpodcast.com. My theme music was written by David Siegel. Donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash subdocpodcast. If you want to help out in other ways, please share this show with us. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on our site. Subdoc is by Doc Fans for Doc Fans. So if you want to advertise, got a film, or opinions to share, hit us up. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.